This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you can't get enough of Shut Up Evan, and I'm sure there's one of you, please make sure to sign up for our Patreon, where we feature extended interviews with each week's guest. On this week's show, we'll have Andy Barragani going deep on his love of the one, the only, Miss Britney Spears. You don't want to miss it. On today's show, Andy Barragani, a senior food editor at Bon Appetit and part of the ensemble of the brand's immensely popular YouTube channel. Barragani talks about being a first-generation American and the impacts that has had on his cooking. It was a duty for me to not just cook and present the food, but really kind of represent uh, that culture as, as best as I could. Learning to forgive those who once antagonized him over his sexuality. When I look back and I think about the things that were said, it's like, this is bad. You know, some of those people became my friends later on. It's very tricky to navigate, but I think also you have to let go to a certain extent. You can't hold resentment or anger. I think that's the worst. And approaching food with emotion. My recipes, my food, I have to have a connection to it. It has to be linked to me in some shape or form. Plus, we get him to share some of his favorite dishes. You make this glaze from tamarind, a little bit of oil, and you just slick it on, and then you top it with this incredible crunchy, spicy crumble, sweet, nutty, crunchy, fiery heat to it that brings the fish back to life. And there's so many textures, and it's festive, and it's really colorful, and I love that dish. That felt pornographic. It really did. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am joined once again by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. How's it going? Pretty good, but somebody had a birthday recently. I believe that would be me you're referring to, or you <laughs> might be referring to Sarah Michelle Geller, whose birthday is just a few days away. Um, how was your quarantine birthday? How did that go? You know what? It was actually quite lovely because um, I got an, my annual birthday email from Sarah Michelle Geller, which Amazing. was really what I was asking for the most. You know, I got to talk to Lisa Rinna and then Andy Cohen recorded me a happy birthday message very unexpectedly that my boyfriend Billy and, and some of my friends arranged. And I just heard from so many people that I care about. And I, you know, honestly, I, as awful a time as this is because everyone is home, I feel like though birthday celebrations have ceased, I think people can get hear from a lot of people that they might not otherwise hear from on a birthday because everyone has the time. 
I think in general, there's like a lot more communication going on that wasn't happening before. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's like finding the good in things. And like, we had dinner from one of my favorite restaurants. We got to go cocktails from um, another favorite place of mine. We made one of the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen uh, birthday cakes, Claire Saffitz's birthday cake, which was delicious. So I can't complain. Amazing. So on today's show, we have Andy Baragani, who's a senior food editor at Bon Appetit. And I think that the timing of this interview is really wonderful in that if you go on any social media platform right now, you will be inundated with both regular um, chefs and cooks and bakers and whatnot making things. And then also bored people taking on food. Sometimes for the first time, sometimes, you know, perfecting things that they were previously a novice at. There's just a ton of food content right now because it's something that you can do indoors and it's really gratifying. So I imagine you've been doing some cooking. What kind of things are you cooking? I'm totally useless in a kitchen, but I can clean up very well. It's an important skill. So just got to find myself a man who can cook and I'll do the cleaning. Um, Before this happened, fortunately, my boyfriend got me a subscription to Home Chef, which is kind of like a Blue Apron-like thing where they send you the ingredients and a recipe. And so fortunately, through doing that for a few weeks, I was learning some basics, like the techniques of having to cook I was learning and am even like branching out from these like handful of recipes that I really liked from this service and even lately have been baking. I just made cookies yesterday for the first time. Mm. So what recipes have you been using? So the thing is, since November, I've been on the keto diet. So there's no carbs, no sugars, no grains. So it really limits my options. But then for baking, there's this like sugar substitute called erythritol and using like almond flour, coconut flour instead of regular flour, there's like some baking alternatives. So yesterday for the first time I cooked like keto friendly cookies, which don't taste great if you are used to regular cookies, but I haven't had sugar since November. So they taste great to me. You haven't had sugar since November? Nope. Wow. That's powerful. But here's the, here's the trade-off, Evan. I've lost 20 pounds since November with just the diet alone. That's great. I thought about, okay, so like five or six years ago, I did this cleanse Mm -hmm. um, called Isagenics. And it was like this 30 day, very, very strict cleanse. And I lost so much weight. It was arguably my thinnest era. And I'm, I'm, I've been contemplating doing it again right now. Cause I'm like, it would save me on having to contend with either getting, going out and getting food, going to the grocery store, cooking. It, it would sort of, uh, you know, solve all of those, that conundrum of what to do and which is, you know, the most cost effective and timely, but I'm kind of like, I'm home all the time is like, are those cravings for, for things be outside of the cleanse going to sort of be amplified by my just overall lethar- like lethargic sort mm-hmm. of tendencies of late. But I'm really considering it because I would love to come out of this really skinny. <laughs> yeah, I was actually gonna, I so I was planning on sticking through this keto diet through the summer, but then during quarantine, I thought, oh, this might actually be really challenging. So maybe I should like quit, but I'm sticking with it. And it's, 
been a huge challenge to find like recipes and like, you know, like bake a cake or something like that, that I want to do that fits the diet. But the benefit is I've never baked or really cooked in general before. So this is the first time I'm learning it. And I'm learning it with like very with like alternative ingredients. Yeah. And it's a good time to do it. I will say, though, as like someone who doesn't really have a sweet tooth, I really enjoy like last night we made this giant birthday cake and like I had a few bites. I was good. But for me, the joy of the I, I'm much more enjoying the experience of baking and being with my boyfriend yeah. and and following a recipe and putting on music and having something that we're both sort of doing together than I am like, oh, my God, I can't wait to like house this cake. It's because we have the time, whereas like, right. you know, when we're working all day long, we're like hustling through the rush hour traffic on the subway. The last thing I want to do when I get home is spend, you know, 40 minutes, an hour, 90 minutes, like cooking something but now it's like you know i can work from home at my computer and then like go cook and come back and it's just such a much more calming pleasant experience than i think in the usual day today it also really makes me appreciate people like andy who the wealth of knowledge he has with how to cook and just create a recipe and know how the different ingredients work together and the flavor profiles like it just makes me really appreciate the expertise he has. Absolutely. And in terms of just, you know, as you sort of said, little things like, so of course, obviously he knows the recipes and things, but as you just mentioned, like flavor profiles, like he's yep. able to look at one dish or or one food and say, this would pair well with this. Or if yeah. you put this spice in this, this would bring out this flavor. And so that depth of knowledge, um, as someone who knows very little about cooking, um, having someone like him who not only knows so much about it, but can really articulate that knowledge is, is a skill unto itself. So, Without any further ado, let's turn things over to our interview with Andy Baragani. Let's do it. He is a senior food editor at Bon Appetit and part of the ensemble of their immensely popular YouTube channel in which he appears on several of the brand's franchise series, including Andy Explores and Making Perfect. The channel has over 5.4 million subscribers and its most watched video, 59 Methods for Making an Egg, has over 23 million views. In addition to his role on camera and in the print magazine, he is the co-food editor of Healthy-ish, one of the magazine's verticals focused on clean eating. The son of first-generation Iranian immigrants, he first began cooking at eight and at 15 got his first restaurant job. He began his professional life interning in the test kitchen at Savieux. I'm quite sure I said that wrong, but we're going to go with it. Uh, before becoming the food editor at Tasting Table and eventually landing at his current gig in October 2015. Out Magazine's Rose Damu called him Bon Appetit's resident thirst trap in her February profile. He is an incredible chef and he is an incredibly passionate thinker and I'm super excited to have him here today. He is Andy Baragani. Andy, thank you so much for being here. Oh my God, that, all, that got me all emotional. <laughs> oh, wow. It's interesting reading people's bios in front of them. And originally I was like, oh, we'll record them afterwards. But then I was like, I think it's fun to sit down with a person and have them take their flowers. It's kind—it's of, definitely overwhelming. I mean, I'm not looking back at what I've done. And I think like it just hearing it, it's like it, food has always been a part of my life for so long now. So 
uh, and I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. I'm thankful to be on the show. We have a funny intersection that we share a friend uh, group, and you, your friends, I, I know a lot of your friends through the internet mostly, but David Sabshon, Grossi Pelosi my best friend. is your best friend. David Sabshon was my first friend in New York. We were roommates in college. I love him. I love him to death. He's he's my other half like I, I I love him to pieces and so they were who first got me put on to you and then my boyfriend became obsessed with Bon Appetit and I wasn't someone who really engaged with YouTube much or food content in general and there was something about the universe of Bon Appetit that really captured me and then I had this sort of discovery of the fandom and I find the Bon Appetit fandom to be one of the most pleasant to engage with and in this world that we're living in now, as I'm sure you know, finding anything pleasant can be few and far between. And so that's part of what I'm really excited today to talk to you about because I think that there's a joy imbued in you, you and your work and your company culture that I see um, that makes it really appealing. I mean, you said it so well. I th We are so thankful for... I mean, the fans, fans of the, the entire brand, the magazine, the videos, um, the website, our podcasts. I think all of us who are there, we're still kind of caught off guard at just how many people love the content we're putting out. And they're just, they're very positive. Like, whether it's like, you know, I watch your videos when I have a bad day, or it's like you've inspired me to get into the kitchen and cook, or uh, I completely learned about this new ingredient or culture or this dish, and it's incredibly heartwarming. I think another thing I really enjoy about your line of work is where I come from working in fashion, it's very much, um, there's an economic undertone to the discussion at all times, right? Which is a conversation about access and who can engage with fashion. I love writing about it because anyone, not anyone, many people can read about fashion, right? It's its a easier barrier to entry. Food, I love so much because not everyone, but many people can go to the grocery store, pick up ingredients, and make something delicious. I mean, I mean, people say it all the time, but it really is our universal language. Like, ideally, like, you're able to have at least one meal, hopefully more a day, and hopefully you can you know, go to the grocery store and pick up a few ingredients and create something that's satisfying. And it's, it is one of those few things that uh, are really the only thing I could think of that stimulates all the senses. What's one basic cooking tip that anyone can adapt to easily that will reap the biggest return on minimal investment? I'm going to give you a few. I'm sorry. It's Please. hard. Uh, season as you go. So when I say that, I'm like, uh, season your food uh, early as possible and then taste and adjust uh, in the beginning, middle, and end. You know, if you season something with salt, let's say a stew at the very beginning, and you just plate it up and eat it, and it's like, oh, it doesn't taste right. Well, it probably needs more salt uh, to really extract all those flavors. Um, I think also choosing good ingredients, you know, uh, eating seasonally. Strawberries in the middle of January are not going to taste that great, and they're going to probably taste like a little bit like styrofoam. Uh, wait until... Well, New York, May, early June, so they're pure red all the way through. Uh, a little bit of acid in the form of vinegar, uh, citrus juice, uh, but also there's so many different forms of acid can really bring um, a dish. Uh, be it becomes more rounded, well-rounded, and brightness and brings it kind of back to life, especially a dish that has been cooking for a long time, like a braise or a stew or a fatty piece of meat. 
Great answer. So I want to talk about food uh, from the emotional perspective with you because uh, from so much of my research on you- and I'm an emotional person. <laughs> yeah, and, and even discussions with your friends about you in preparation for today. Oh God, who'd you, who'd you talk to? <laughs> we'll get to that later. Uh, but uh, emotion is so much behind your work. So as I mentioned earlier, you first began cooking at eight years old. Can you sort of talk to me about that time and that discovery of food from the emotional perspective? So I would say, like, uh, I mean, I have photos out there, and I, they were published in an article uh, that BA published a while back, where I have, like, a, a toy Fisher-Price kitchen uh, at age four, uh, and you could see me just standing next to it at age four, so proud of it. So uh, something came over me. I don't know what it is. Uh, I mean, no one is a professional cook in, in my family. Uh, my mother's an exceptional cook. Uh, her mother was an exceptional cook. But I don't know where exactly I got this in deep, deep love where I wanted to um, go into it as a career, uh, as a profession. But when I started to cook, which really was like, you know, yeah, eight years old, it was very kind of basic things. It was like after school um, top ramen, but instead of the spice powder, I would like cook some garlic and butter and I'd add some chili uh, flakes and like add whatever herb we had and that was it. It was just these little things that I could experiment that when I look back, I'm like, I, they're cringeworthy and I would never kind of make, but I also was very young. so. Um, and then I wanted to experiment more and more uh, to the point where by the time I was 16, I believe, I wanted to go into a professional kitchen. And that's when I first started uh, working in restaurants. Do you remember the first time you discovered the power of food as a tool, that something that you could do that you could gift to somebody else and make them remarkably happy? I would say that it was probably, I knew what it could do just because of how evocative food and the smells and tastes were for me. But I think it was really great when I was living in Brooklyn um, and had this incredible warehouse space and lived with five others, a very crazy time in my life, but such a special time in my life. We had a big table that could fit up to 18, 20 people. So I would do these kind of pop-up dinners at this uh, warehouse space. And really, it was our, our home. And I would have a random group of people come sometimes like two, three times a month, and I would cook them seasonal Iranian food. It was really the first time I was getting into the food um, that I grew up with and other kind of dishes that I guess were Iranian, but I didn't necessarily grow up with. Um, and I could see people just in shock being like, oh my God, like I've never had food like this before. Oh, I never knew this, this was Iranian food or like, this is similar to my background or like, I, I never knew what barberries were or how to use turmeric or dried limes. And to see people, to be able to open their mind about food, but then also a culture that is often misunderstood. And not all of those dinners, but a lot of them people would kind of ask questions more about the culture, about the country, about my background. And it became a really kind of, it took, it was a duty for me to kind of not just cook and present the food, but really kind of represent uh, that culture as, as best as I could. In a story from March, 2018, 
for Bon Appetit, you wrote, quote, I didn't want to reveal my sexuality or ethnicity to anyone. I just wanted to cook, which is interesting in contrast to what you just said, where later in life it seems to have become a really prevalent conversation. That's funny. You know, I don't read that story often because um, it's based off a talk I did, I guess, BA heard that I was that I gave this talk and they were like, you need to turn this into an essay. I'm like, no, because then it's out there forever. But um, my wonderful, wonderful editor, Julia Kramer, she's like, let's let's do this. Like, I think it would be good. And um, I was happy with the piece, but I remember about like two, three weeks before we were going to ship, I kind of like, I had a moment where I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, this is, I don't. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to kind of rise to the occasion in this sense? Why do I have to kind of put this out there? Like, I, I am incredibly private in many ways. You know, obviously, I do the videos for BA, but even posting on social, it's, it's something that it's not doesn't come natural to me. I sometimes describe myself as like a forced extrovert because I think I'm good at socializing and I'm communicating with others, but I, I'm actually quite shy. And with that essay, long story short, I really did want to kind of show people that it was a process for me to get uh, to become comfortable with my sexuality and my Iranian heritage. I think when it comes to my cooking, I still would never describe myself as like someone who cooks Iranian food. I think I have a deep knowledge of Iranian food. I think I know a lot of the ingredients, dishes, the techniques very, very well, and I've studied them but I will not be confined as just an Iranian cook. I think that tends to happen with immigrants or first-generation Americans as I am, and I will not have that. You mentioned sort of the fact that you haven't went back and, and looked at that piece often. I'm wondering, would you be comfortable reading an excerpt from it that I pulled, or would that make you? No, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> I began to throw away my lunches. I didn't want anyone to ask what was in them. No more cuckoo, my mother's Persian herb frittata. No more kalba sandwiches, all beef martadella wrapped in lavash bread. I would ask my parents not to drop me off close to school in fear that my peers would see their brown skin or hear their accents. When it came to the beard that appeared on my 12-year-old face, I shaved every day and stole a bit of my mother's foundation to cover it up. I started to tell people I had some Italian in me. My name, Baragani, became Baragani. I invested in a t-shirt that read, Italian Stallion. It would later become infamous among my best friends. Even when it came to my first love in New York, I initially told him I was only half Iranian, which was a partial truth that freed me from being entirely associated with my heritage. I think it was a very powerful clip, as well as a very powerful reading. Uh, I'm curious what it's like for you right now to go back to that place of who you were writing that and reflecting on that part of your life. You know, it's 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 tricky because like that wasn't that long ago. It was um, it was two, two years ago, actually, a little more. Um, when I look back at actually uh, doing the talk and then writing the piece, but I think a lot of things have changed since then. And even when I was writing the piece, it was I was. If, if you read the the entire piece, like very much like I talk about how. Uh, it's not like this perfect end result. I didn't get to a place where everything's perfect in the end. It's If anything, it's like I have good days and bad days like everybody else, and it's a, it's a, a struggle. Luckily, it's not a constant struggle. I feel 
more clear-minded in who I am than I think ever before. I feel very, very sure of what I want to do, uh, how I want to do it, and who I want to be. I imagine, though, and actually to some extent I've experienced times in which I've written think pieces in the past, oh my God, like the ones that are just going through my mind right now, um, of opinions that I once held and that I held very fervently and felt the need to expound upon. And now in my older age, I will go back and look at that and be like, it's not that I don't agree even with what I was fundamentally saying. It's like my um, tenacity both good and bad to think that it needed to be said or that I, or that I I wanted to put this out there. So I think an interesting thing in in asking you to go back and reflect on all of this is that that piece sort of exists and it will always exist on the internet in some way and to a lot of people that's the version of you that they will know and I think it's a unique situation to be in to be tasked with speaking about your struggles with your own identity and there being an ephemeral quality to what was a time in your life. But interestingly, you describe it, you say, it was bad and it got good. It's it's not so linear. I also have to say like, it was a very specific time that I'm talking about. This is, I'm a child of like, um, of, of post 9-11 and I experienced a lot of prejudice because of my heritage. And that's where I kind of exper- experienced these feelings and 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 had these encounters and uh why i felt so kind of uh, insecure and confused but um i think it's it's important to say that because i i i i think right now seeing people from everywhere however they identify their, their gender their sexual orientation people are so willing to kind of stand up it feels like for one another now more than ever before and um, it just wasn't really like that before. It was very tricky. I don't think I turned to anybody, anybody about that stuff until I wrote that piece. You are at the intersection of two marginalized identities. So when you experienced bullying or any sort of lack of acceptance, did you more often equate that with your Iranian identity or your gay identity, or was it a combination of both? Uh, it wasn't, it, it was definitely... Uh, a combination, but not at the same time. I would say the bullying when it came to my sexuality started at probably around, maybe around six, seven. Uh, although I was aware by the time I was f- five was when I was aware something's different, you know? <laughs> I like the Ken doll more than Barbie. And that existed really until I was um, 15, 16. And then I would say... The bullying in, in regards to my Iranian heritage, that started, it didn't start right after 9-11, which uh, would, have been, would have been 12 years old, but it really started when I was 13. And uh, I went to a new school district. I would not say very diverse by any means, and I experienced it pretty badly. Like when I look back and I think about the things that were said, it's like, this is bad. You know, some of those people became my friends later on. It's very tricky to navigate, but I think also you have to let go to a certain extent. You can't hold resentment or anger. I think that's the worst. I think it's really dangerous when that happens. How often are you able in those situations to truly thread the needle in terms of, yes, people change. Yes, people evolve. Yes, people grow up. And yet, um, 
some of these words that people can use when the intention is to bully, to make others feel less than, the sting... Lasts forever. Forever. I don't think they necessarily knew exactly what that those terms can, that the kind of effect they had. So I can't really hold that against them uh, at that time or even now for that matter. But there was some subtle changes. And uh, what I recognized uh, was that, oh, this is this could be part of their past and they can evolve and they have a lot more depth and they have a lot more knowledge. And also they have knowledge just from being my friend, from also meeting my family, getting high and going on rants about things, about our upbringings. I feel like I have this duty, whether I want it or not, where I need to kind of represent the LGBTQ plus and the Iranian community. I feel that because it, it, I am part of these two communities and I, there's not enough representation out there and I would like to be a good representation. Uh, it comes with a lot of responsibility that gets tricky, but I think if you identify someone who wants to be an ambassador of sorts or a good representation, I was thinking like, you also have to kind of take a moment to step back and kind of recharge. And that's something I don't think people talk about also, where it's not like, nope. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Pity me or, or pat, pat myself on the back, but it's more like, I don't, even, I don't know if I should say this, like my younger coworkers and and friends who like want to fight the good fight i'm like you gotta take a step back this is a long-term thing you know you want to do the fight you want to go to battle you want to win the war you gotta be strategic pick your battles and um and that step back is not turning back it's no, a step back no and it's it's um often good for both parties involved i find before we start talking about bon appetit let's take a break and we're back with Andy Baragani. Um, how gay is the food industry? Not gay enough. I mean, pretty gay. Some people say it's not gay at all, but the reality is like everywhere I've worked, there have been some member of the LGBTQ plus community, definitely more in food media. I would say when I worked on the line in restaurants, I didn't encounter enough. But um, I don't think they get enough representation. That's the thing. Uh, it's not so much that how gay is the food industry. It's more like, well, it, it, it is. There's plenty of people, um, but it's just they're, they're not represented properly. Fair. 
So now some questions about Bon Appetit. So you get hired at Bon Appetit in 2015, mm -hmm. which was 75 years ago at this point. Um, so YouTube was big, but not yet sort of like the giant that it's going to become. Um, how were the early YouTube videos pitched to you? And were you concerned that you would just be another person in the kitchen on screen? You know, I was open to doing the videos. I don't I don't think that's exactly what any of us signed up for when we got the job. Um, the videos didn't come along until like, I'd say, maybe a year and a half, two years ago uh, with BA. Initially, we were just doing these kind of instructional cooking videos from the test kitchen. And I'll speak for myself, I was definitely, well, probably a, a lot of us were uncomfortable in the beginning and it was like unnatural. And now it's like, well, seeing if cameras are not there in the test kitchen, it would feel weird uh, today. Um, the videos are incredible and they are a big part of my job now. But when I came on, that was not the case. So they come in and they're like, we're just gonna film this, right? At that point, what was your expectation around like what this would become? And, and were you expecting that it would gain any kind of traction? Not at all. I think a lot of us were just like, okay, this is just, again, like, we're presenting a recipe and we're teaching people how to make it. And then it was like, oh, you know, the producers are getting a little kind of sassy. They're a little, a little creative and like with the edits and there's like a banter and they could see these little things about us and they know like what can like set us off or um, we are very much a chaotic, loving family. We're all very different and our cooking backgrounds are pretty different but we respect each other and we work well together and we really love each other. And um, clearly the, the video side, they saw something that we were aware of, but we didn't think it would be make good videos. <laughs> One interesting element that I imagine couldn't have been so predicted, but seems to be a lane that is now sort of a really comfortable one for the series is having you all interact with one another in videos and reacting to each other's ideas. Um, literally, there some of my favorite BA moments are when you are in the background and someone's like, hey, Andy, can you come over and try this? And you make a brief cameo in the video and you say, you know, you might come on and you'd be like, this needs a little more this or this needs a pinch of that or something. <laughs> it's those charming moments that I think really set BA apart because to me as the viewer, it reads, this work was already happening in this space. We just happened to capture it with really nice cameras and really nice lighting and really good editing. In our perfect Thanksgiving celebration, there should be a turkey, right, Andy? There should be definitely a turkey. Maybe it's whole, maybe it's not. Maybe it's smoked, maybe it's fried, who knows? Who knows? So you yeah. don't feel like there has to be one presentation of like the whole perfectly glazed whatever so. turkey? No. I mean, it's true that that's not the, the optimal way to cook. Right. That's no. the biggest bird that thing. Size. That's yeah. never perfect because it's a bad way to cook turkey. Right. Legs overcooked, like they, they cook differently than the breasts, right? Yeah. Right. Definitely roasted whole and see like where we get. I'll put low and slow on here. I'm putting whole or parts. We haven't really touched on brining. Right? I think, like how yeah. the flavor gets into With, the turkey. Yeah, I love the brining. brining. Yeah, the, I'm I'm like, like, about like maybe a little fish sauce in the brine. Sure. No. Yeah. How about yeah. that? The medium of YouTube by its nature is very performance driven and you all it never feels like performance. Even in those moments when I think you guys are so adorable, it's never performing adorable. The thing is, and, and thank you for saying that, like, I think it just shows like we really do respect each other. And like, if I'm putting food out and I'm presenting it to, let's say, 
an editor for a story, I would have Chris or Molly try it beforehand. You know, like I, I, I respect their opinions. I value their opinions. And at the end of the day, like as cooks, as, as creatives, we want to push each other to be better. You know, and I think you, people should be doing that in kind of whatever field or, or craft that they're doing. So you're famous now. No, I don't consider that. I really, <laughs> but, but I don't think that. So you have a level of fame that I can imagine wasn't necessarily the goal from the onset of your career. As you're balancing this idea of like being a food editor, but also being a personality somewhat. And I know that might be, perhaps I'm not framing it how you would, but um, you are someone who people see on the internet regularly and who disseminates information that people take and use. What is that like for you receiving feedback that is not necessarily only about your food and could often be like, you're not speaking loud enough or I didn't like the way that you explain or, or, or critiques of you that don't have to do with your work directly. So I will say I don't read the comments on YouTube. Frankly, I don't think I ever will. That's one. And the only other way would be like, I guess my DMs. And I do check my DMs and I really try to respond. Um, That's like a dangerous thing to offer up on this podcast, but okay. I, I, no, it's it's <laughs> well. I really try to respond when it's like there's a, there's a question, there's a cooking question, or they like express something, and if I could help in some way, or but if you're talking about things that have really nothing to do with food, then I don't know. Yeah, I get, I get a few of those too. Let's talk about that briefly, if you don't mind. I mean. Rose, Dom, you did call you the resident thirst trap of the BA test kitchen. Yeah, Rose. What did um, you do? And you are very popular on the internet um, with a lot of straight women and gay men and probably many other people in between. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, I, I mean I'll, I'll bring all of them. Yeah. And so what's that like for you being the subject of thirst on the internet? Uh, it's not a terrible thing. I'll say that much. Um, <laughs> I am... Uh, I'm recently single. I was in a relationship for a, for a while, and now I'm just kind of like feeling the thirst. I don't know what else to say. Like, and I turned thirty this year, uh, one step closer to becoming the dad I want to be. And uh, I look at it this way: I'm somehow still the baby in the kitchen. Like, I'm still the youngest person in the kitchen. Pretty much everybody is married, partnered, and or has kids, except for me. So it's not like I'm trying to bring that on or, or push that image, but it's like, yeah, I have a few, th I have, have a nice social life outside of my job. So say you meet a guy in any sense, whether it be uh, a date or just a new friend or a hookup, what have you, often I imagine that they're coming into it with the context of who you are, not always, but often. And what is that like for you to have in encounters with people in which they know you and you don't know them? Or they know a they have a perception of who you are? To be honest, and I'm not really in that mode of kind of dating per se at this moment, um, but I would like or I'm hopeful that I'd be meeting people who have no sense of what I do and have no idea of, of who I am. Like that's definitely the introvert who, uh, that's what I would want. But 
if people who do know what I do and who I am and they come up to me, then like in whatever shape or form, like I'm, I would embrace them and like obviously talk to them. And I'm not a, like wherever I am, I feel like I've gotten DMs, especially in the last few weeks. Like I saw you here and here, but like I was too shy to say hi. I was like, Come say hi. Like, I'm easy. I'm very easygoing in that regard. It's interesting, too, though, because of the nature of what you do. So say, like, a drag performer, the fan might be, like, a fan of their performance as a character. So when they encounter them in real life, it's kind of there is a distance between. But I feel like for people that love you, they're seeing you as you. Yeah. So I think there's there's a pureness about the intent in that situation because there's not as much distance between the public persona and the self. That makes sense. Um. On that note, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with a little surprise from a friend of yours. If you enjoyed what you just heard, I have some good news for you. There are extended interviews with our talent available on our Patreon at patreon.com backslash shutupevan. For those of you that aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a way for myself, my producer Alden, to make a little bit of coin off of this podcast. That support will allow us to continue to make more episodes. So if you liked what you heard and want to support what we're doing and the continued effort to keep doing it, please consider subscribing to our Patreon today. And we're back. Okay, so this is a question submitted by a mutual friend of ours. Hey, Andy. It's me, David. Evan asked me to uh, submit a question (laughs) for you. Um, And I actually have two. The first is, I heard a rumor that you sometimes let a date on the first date pick the restaurant so that you have an opportunity to see if they sort of get food. Um, Is that true? And also, what is the worst date experience when it comes to food? Who took you to the worst restaurant? Well, don't tell us who, but tell us where. And also, another rumor is that sometimes you um, have cried during meals. And I wanted to know when the last time was that that happened. And what about the food or the experience made you feel that way? We love that you're a softie on the inside. Anyway, I love you. And thank you, Evan, for letting me infiltrate this conversation. Bye. Love David and his three, maybe four questions. Yeah, that was multiple questions. Yeah. Um, I just have to say, David has known me for over 10 years. He knows so much. So those questions are tame. So thank you, David. <laughs> like Maybe thank you, David. <laughs> maybe not thank you. Um, okay, the first yeah, I was question. Say, can you go back and remember this one? Because I feel like that was 75 years ago. The first ago. question was, I think, um, I, do I let... Um, ah. When I go on a date with someone, I, l- I let them pick the restaurant. Is that true or false? I, I Not every time, but I think, yeah, overall, to be honest, I haven't been on a first date in years. So I think that's like, that's uh, hard to remember. But yes, I do do that. Um, I'm not trying to like do any kind of trickery. Um, but if anything, it's more just like, eh, you know, like just, it doesn't need to be fancy or, f- or, or sceney or new. I just want to see like where where they would choose for a first date. Um, but I'm to be honest, I really am easygoing. I don't want to think about the food if I'm on the first date. I want to be thinking about you. So there's that. Um, and then... But the second part of that question, because we got a two-part two questions, uh, was what's the worst place that a date has ever taken you? I think the worst place, which isn't a bad place by any means, and I actually can enjoy it more than a few times um is bear burger 
I was just like, mm, this is not what I need at this moment. Um, at like eight o'clock on a Friday night, like this is not my my jam. But cute for the future, maybe like however many dates in for an afternoon burger. But I will not be spreading my Friday nights or most nights at Bear Burger. It's also really pricey. Yeah, it is. Uh, okay, so then we have part one of the second question, which is about you being very emotional about food and at times crying. Yeah, I mean, David's so ridiculous. <laughs> David cries all the time, by the way, which there's nothing wrong with that. He just cries like if like a gray sky ends up becoming blue like it's like it's like i'm just like oh god here we go you know like and i am not that way i don't i i i feel a lot of emotions but i don't necessarily cry all that often um you know i would say one thing that a lot of the folks at ba know about me and i look at it as a both a strength and a weakness uh is that if you look at how i cook my recipes, my food, I have to have a connection to it. It has to be linked to me in some shape or form. And I don't say that in a way that's like ecocentric or anything like that. It's If anything, it's more like I need to feel something in order to put this dish out. That's why it's like it doesn't need to be just Persian because of, you know, my upbringing. Like, if anything, I could take those influences or, or and those ingredients and apply it or techniques that I've picked up or flavors from my restaurant experience or from my travels. I try to go to a new country every year by myself. And also just like the restaurants that have shaped the way I cook as not just as a cook working there, but also just like being a guest there. I've been fortunate enough to go to a lot of different restaurants around the world. And uh, there's been a handful of times that I have gotten emotional. And it's funny because I've gotten emotional at these meals, not necessarily because they were the best meals, but it was more of just seeing the craftsmanship and the thoughtfulness presented either a specific dish or their overall experience. I didn't cry. I was on the verge a few summers back when I was at Elski in Chicago. I think when it came to, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I, I like desserts. I don't have a huge sweet tooth though, but, um, the pastry chef there, it's a husband and wife duo, uh, David and Anna, uh, incredible, incredible cooks. When a- Anna pre- kind of was so generous and sent, um, I was actually having dinner with David, funny enough, uh, and his father, um, they sent out all the uh, pastries, all the desserts on the menu. And I think that like took me over the edge because it just was like, this is incredibly beautiful, so balanced, pushes me to want to be a better cook, to be able to try to hopefully evoke some kind of message and have people respond this way in some shape or form um, through my food. Um, So it, it does tug something from like my childhood where it's like, it is, to be a cook is, a very a joyous thing and I think like more than anything like if you ask me what I do eh, yeah it's a tricky question but like I still identify as my myself as I'm a cook it's one of those fields that you really are able to give and I think it's 
to me, the sweetest gesture one can do to cook for someone. So you eat a lot. You have to eat. It's part of your job. Yeah, I eat a lot. Um, sitting here before me today, you are a physically fit man. <laughs> uh, for proof of such, go to your Instagram page. How do you balance um, eating for work and wanting to maintain a healthy lifestyle? I get this question all the time, and it drives me nuts because my coworkers tease me. But it's like they are conscious of it too. I never even talk about it on video or do anything. But it, I will say like. There's a lot of food that comes out of the test kitchen. And I think part of my job is I do not just taste the food that I develop, but uh, uh, the food from other food editors um, or recipes from uh, restaurant chefs that we adapt uh, and feature. I'm tasting. I'm not eating a full meal. And that is something where I have trained myself. Like, I don't need to eat the whole thing, the whole like a full serving of whatever it is, rice, pasta, two cookies. I don't need to do that. I need to taste and I need to figure out, does this recipe work? Does this recipe look good? Is this the recipe that we need right now uh, to feature? Does, are we, are we making too many changes? Uh, does it feel seamless? Will people make it? You know, that's a huge question. Is it too fussy? Is it too restauranty? Those are the things that I look for when I'm tasting the food. You know, I eat everything. There's nothing that I cut. I don't go on any diets. There's definitely certain things I don't eat as much of, but that's been the case for so long now. Like I, I definitely, there's just certain things I just try. I, I do in general eat pretty healthy and I avoid a lot of processed foods, so. Let's end uh, with some superlative style questions. What item of food that you've tasted in the BA test kitchen would you say is the most memorable? Wow, that's a great question. I'm just gonna go a little bit more on the newer side because I've been there for, for over four and a half years. I have a special relationship. <laughs> we, we, we all have special relationships with one another, but um, our uh, new food director, uh, Chris Morocco is also um, my station buddy, uh, Station Three, the most powerful station that exists in the kitchen. And uh, I would say, while we maybe approach recipe development a little bit differently here and there, I would say we're we're similar in many ways too. Thoughtful, precise cooks. I really look to him in so many ways more than anybody else to. Um, to taste my food and to push me in ways. And I, I hope I do that for him. And we have a story coming out for our grilling issue. And I feel like this is not a great answer, but it's incredible what he did. It's a steak primer. And he just kind of went about really with the message of just like, we shouldn't be eating red meat that often. But when you do buy good meat and treat it well and cook it properly. And the way he went about that story from just terms of researching and different techniques, different flavor profiles, um, texturally, and to see the full range, it really blew my mind. He did like this lacquered, I think T-bone steak. I think it was like a little bit of fish sauce and soy, like super umami glaze. It just was like shiny and had this incredible crust but perfectly rosy flesh inside. 
I mean, so many of his dishes, I think, like his uh, lasagna uh, is is perfect. I mean, I do like my bolognese. It should be that lasagna with my bolognese. I'm going to say that. It was. It would be hard for me to like say that without getting the recipe of mine in there. Um, but he is an incredible cook, and um, I love his food so much. What's one human interaction that you've had on camera on the VA test kitchen, an unexpectedly human interaction that you're really, I'm not necessarily that you're proud of, but that you're really glad that people got to see? It could be with one of my coworkers. Yeah. It would probably be (laughs) my relationship with Brad, Brad Leone. He just messaged me funny enough. We were put together for Making Perfect season one. And we were, again, put together for Making Perfect Season 2. And I think it might happen again for Season 3. It's funny because, like, maybe people look at us as polar opposites in so many ways. He's incredibly tall. I'm definitely on the shorter side. And the way we cook is definitely different. Uh, he's, He's an incredible cook who's open and tries so many different things and experiments. I do experiment a lot, obviously. It's part of the job. Uh, but I am very much uh, have my steps and a little bit more, for lack of better words, n- neurotic in, in my ways. And I think people can really see both sides when we're on camera. But the reality is, like, he's also someone who I'm one of the closest with off camera. We have a lot of shared interests and very similar references when it comes to our music tastes, are tasted like he could see why I have my like my taste of men he gets I gets his taste of women there's you know there's there's just like we he he gets it and I get it too and and I think we both like have that party boy in us out of anybody else I think we're definitely the wild ones and I think people could see that we can get rowdy and uh we have what's one Andy Baragani recipe that you'd want people listening to this podcast to try? If there's anything, I've learned a lot of things over the years working in food media, but people just are scared to make fish at home. And you shouldn't be scared. You should just be going to somewhere that you trust, like a good fishmonger. So just find where they have good seafood and ask about it and shop sustainably. Like, Obviously, this this fish is for black bass or snapper, I believe. Um, I don't have the recipe in front of me, and I developed it a while ago. But it's um, it's definitely pulls flavors from like southern India, but also a little bit of Thailand. Uh, and it's this tamarind glazed black bass, and you make this glaze from tamarind, a little bit of oil. Uh, I think garlic and ginger, and you just kind of slick it on to the fish. And it is whole fish. If you don't want to use whole fish, you could use uh, skin-on boneless um, fillets. And you just slick it on um, both sides of of, this, uh, of the fish, and then you just lay it on a baking sheet, roast it at high heat to get that glaze even more shiny and sticky. And then you top it with this incredible crunchy, spicy crumble of toasted coconut chilies, and cilantro, and um, I feel like I'm missing something, but it's like it has this sweet, nutty, crunchy, fiery heat to it that brings the fish back to life. And there's so many textures, and it's festive, and it's really colorful, and I love that dish. That felt pornographic. It really did. Let me end by asking you a 
heady question, perhaps. You've done so much both professionally in your career and in your life uh, by way of accomplishments. Um, obviously, your professional accomplishments, but as little as I know about you personally, I know based off of the friend group and the friend community that you surround yourself with that you are a good person. And even through this discussion today, I just sense a real heart and, uh, and a word that you use several times today, thoughtfulness around so much of the way that you live your life. In these 30 years that you've had on this earth, what is something that comes to mind that you are most proud of about the person that you are? I think when it comes down to it, I, I show up. I show up when a coworker needs me. I show up when a friend needs me. It's not perfect every time, um, but I'm human and I'm very aware. But I know how important that is as someone who's needed people to kind of be there for me at times. And... Um, it doesn't take a lot of effort to kind of just, just show up. And I think most of the time um, people just need um, someone there to listen. Um, and I think there's a few reasons why I have such a great varied group of people in my life in New York and outside. I think it's part of it is because like I, I try to be there. If I'm not physically there, I'll be there on the phone. So I think that's something that more than ever, I mean, always, but... Um, we have to look out for one another and be there for one another. Well said. Um, we're done. Uh, thank you so much. People can find you not on Twitter. They can find you, obviously, on Instagram, on Bon Appetit's YouTube page. I want to really encourage people to read your writing. Uh, I'm a really big fan of the way you put together words and the way you talk about food. Um, and I really want to encourage people to know that side of you. Not to say they don't already, but that's just the side of you I really admire. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Seriously, it's, it's been a great experience. Great. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced and edited by Alden Peters. This podcast is made possible in part by our supporters on Patreon. So we tip our hat to you all. Go to patreon.com backslash shut up Evan to get access to bonus content, including extended interviews and bonus clips. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for giving a shit about anything that I have to say. 